Hello, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Akash Pound and I am happy to be chairing our event today in conversation with Michael Russell, who's the member of the Scottish Parliament for Argyll and Butte and Cabinet Secretary for the Constitution, Europe and External Affairs. I'm going to be putting a series of questions to Mr Russell over the next 45 minutes or so. Um, anyone who's watching this live can suggest questions on Microsoft Teams using the Q&A function. Um, you can also vote for other people's questions that you particularly like, and I will take that into account as I put some of those questions to our guest over the course of the conversation. And um, please do, if you don't mind, say who you are and where you're calling from, so to speak, just uh, so we can refer to that as we go forward. This event is the sixth in our Elections 2021 series, as part of which we've been speaking to leading political figures from uh, England, Scotland and Wales in advance of the devolved and local elections, which are taking place in just 10 days time. Uh, videos of all those previous events, as well as our analysis, lots of uh, commentary and uh, data visualisation and so on about all the elections can be found on our website in our dedicated Elections 2021 uh, project page. So please do take a look at all that. Today our focus will of course be on Scotland and I'm very grateful to Mike Russell for joining us. Uh, we'll be talking about the election, of course, the sixth election to the Scottish Parliament since it was created in 1999. We'll be talking inevitably about the SNP's plans for independence, other plans that it set out in its manifesto, and Mike's personal experience in government of, of negotiating with uh, ministers at Westminster and other matters besides, I'm sure. Uh, Mike, as mentioned, um, is uh, MSP, of course, for Argyll and Beauty. He's been a member of the Scottish Parliament for uh, all but four years of the 22 years of devolution. He's served in a number of ministerial roles and for the last few years he's led for the Scottish Government on Brexit and the Constitution. So some quite big contentious portfolios he has been responsible for. Um, he's also been president of the SNP since last year. Mike, this is the second time you've uh, joined us for an event. The last time was actually in our building, which is of course uh, on my virtual backdrop today. Today we're doing this virtually, um, hence you've got your own rather uh, spectacular backdrop. Uh, thanks very much for spending the time to speak with us today. Delighted to be here. You have your wonderful backdrop and I had a, a, a very good event in there with you just uh, two or three years ago. Uh, my backdrop is what I can see from where I'm sitting. If I look to my left, though, there is no snow today, fortunately, in Argyll, but I'm I'm in the Argyllshire countryside in my own constituency, which will be my constituency only for another week uh, because I, I give up being the MSP for Argyll and Boot next Tuesday uh, and the election is on Thursday. Yes, indeed. And so I wanted to start with uh, with your own personal plans, actually, before we kind of get stuck into the the substantive uh, content, so to speak. So, yeah, you're stepping down after. Well, as I said, you had that period out of Parliament, but otherwise you've been a politician up at Hollywood for the best part of uh, well, 20, of most of the 22 years of devolution. So 
what are your plans then? Are you looking forward to the quiet life or is this a matter of like Tony Benn, you retiring from Parliament to spend more time with politics? Well, I hope not quite as much as Tony Benn did, but um, I, I was party chief executive, of course, be, before I before the Scottish Parliament. So I've been through devolution and maybe we'll reflect upon that in a moment and how uh, devolution, the perception of devolution certainly has changed, particularly south of the border. I, I have a, a live connection with Glasgow University. I spent some time uh, on a part time post there two or three years ago when I was out of government and I'm going back for a period of time. I have a a role as Professor of Scottish Culture and Governance in a part-time basis, and I shall enjoy that. I might have a Brexit book in me, everybody else has. I don't see why I shouldn't have a Brexit book in it. And I think the Scottish perspective on Brexit needs to be told. And of course, you know, in any yes campaign, I will be very active indeed. But uh, I hope also to perhaps spend a little less time working. I'm, uh, I'm 67 and I seem to have spent uh, a great deal of my time working in the last uh, 50 years. So perhaps just a little less of that will be attractive. <laughs> OK, that sounds like a, a good set of plans. We look forward to to the book. OK, so uh, let's talk a bit about the election. So, I mean, I'm sure you're, you've still been involved to some extent in the campaign, but uh, maybe not as much as, as uh, you normally would have been um, when you were standing. Um, the SNP is, of course, hoping to win uh, an overall majority, which in, in, in the Scottish Parliament means 65 or more seats. There's been some polls recently. There was one I saw just today suggesting uh, a party might manage that, but certainly it'll be a, a close run thing. Scotland has, of course, a proportional electoral system. Um, so winning a majority is is tricky. If the SNP remains the largest party, but without a majority, so say in a similar position to, to what you've been in for the past five years, you'll again have to cooperate with other smaller parties to get your business through. Uh, What's been your experience of, of operating in that way as a as a minority government? How challenging is it to govern without a majority of your own? It's always challenging. I mean, I, I am I'm confident of the election and the election is going well, but it requires us to campaign for both votes for the SNP, the Scottish system, for those who, who don't know it, requires uh, two votes to be cast, uh, a constituency vote and a regional vote. Um, it is important that we pick up seats on the regional lists as well. So the campaign is very definitely for both votes for the SNP, and that will continue right through uh, until the last minute of, of this campaign. And we take absolutely nothing for granted. All elections in Scotland are, are hard fought. Um, we require, and our manifesto makes it clear that amongst the many things we're talking about, there's a range of things about increasing NHS spending, creating national care servicing, doubling the Scottish child payment, delivering more affordable homes. But amongst that, uh, we also propose the holding of an independence referendum. Um, and uh, that requires a bill through the Scottish Parliament. That requires a bill with a simple majority through the Scottish Parliament. And that's what we would intend to bring in and to, and to take through. But without an overall majority, of course, that becomes uh, uh, slightly harder. And is there any possibility of uh, SNP forming a, a coalition with another party like the Scottish Greens or would your preference always be just to govern in minority as you've done so far? My preference is never to discuss coalitions uh, you know, until the circumstances require them and, and, and certainly there, there are no such plans in place and, and very little such discussion has been taken place in the press and elsewhere. I mean, I, I don't think one should second guess election results. We'll see what happens a, a week on Thursday uh, and then we'll take it from there or rather my, my, my colleagues will take it from there. The important thing is to have a clear vision of what we want to achieve 
and, and have the means to achieve it. And in order to achieve an independence referendum, the best outcome would be by people backing both votes SNP, getting an SNP majority government. Okay, so let's um, let's say there is uh, a pro-independence majority elected, whether that's SNP alone or, or, or with allies. Um, what would be the immediate next moves after May the 6th, or after the, the Scottish Parliament reconvenes of the Scottish Government? Well, we published just before the Parliament rose in, in, in March, we published a, a draft referendum bill. And this was the third piece of legislation uh, of a suite of legislation that essentially uh, lays the groundwork for a referendum. The first part is the details of the referendum, a bit like the Papera legislation south of the border, which has been in existence at Westminster for 20 years, but which we had nothing similar to it. When the referendum took place in, in 2014, there was a special piece of legislation. So we put in place a, a generic piece of legislation for, for referenda. We put in place a, a franchise change, which applies to all Hollywood franchise elections. So it will apply to this election, it will apply to local elections, but it will also apply to a, a, a referendum, which widens the franchise. And essentially a very modern franchise gives a vote to all those who are legally resident in Scotland. So that franchise law is through and also for 16 and 17 year olds, of course, that's been in place for some time. And the third part essentially enables the question to be set and, and, and a number, number of other things and the date to be set. So it's all there, um, ready to go. But of course, we are in the midst of it pandemic. It is important that, uh, that we recognise that the pandemic is not over. Today is a, a good day in Scotland because we're having a, a, a bit of a, a relaxation of, of the lockdown that's been in place since the 26th of December, but we have some distance to go. So uh, the, 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 indication that, the, the indication we've given to the Scottish people, quite rightly, is we will introduce that bill when we believe there can be a referendum in the light of the pandemic, and we will take that bill through the Parliament. It requires a, a simple majority, and then we'll implement that bill. As the people of Scotland have said to the party in government, we approve of what your policy is. And if they've said that you know, they, we want you to implement it, we will implement that bill. Will the prior step, though, not be to seek agreement with the UK government and to seek the passage of what's known as a Section 30 order, the technical term, but the authorising legislation at Westminster, that would make it crystal clear that you actually have the power to hold a referendum? So I would much, we've always said we would much rather hold a referendum with a Section 30 order granted. And of course, we will, you know, we have tackled that issue with the UK government before, and we certainly will tackle it again if we are elected, re-elected to government and introduce that bill. You know, we will certainly uh, say that we would like a Section 30 order or we can say, look, if you don't think you need one, then we'll just go ahead. But we also have to say that uh, there has to be that referendum. Now, I expect the UK government will grant a Section 30 order in the light of a, a, an election victory that says that's what the people of Scotland want. If a UK government is not prepared to do that, then I think we're in, you know, in very unique times. We're in anti-democratic times. We've seen a little bit of that in recent days with very odd contributions from people like Adam Tompkins, who you know, was a, an, a, is a retiring SNP, uh, uh, Tory MSP, essentially saying that people of Scotland, the law should be changed, that so there should never be a referendum, not one now, but never. But I hope calmer and more sensible heads will prevail and that democracy will prevail. And do you think there's any chance of the UK government actually you, you seem to think they might change their position on, on whether there should be a referendum? 
if if you do win a majority. Do you think there's any chance that they might say, OK, well, we're going to legislate and uh, hold a referendum on our terms? And, and, and might there be a kind of uh, compromise that, that you could reach with them if, 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 they, if the UK be, government were to set the terms of it? There can always be discussion. Nobody's ever against discussion. But it, mm. it, I, I reflect upon this odd conversation we're having, you know, which in many parts of the world, people would say this is bizarre. If people vote to have a referendum, if they wish to have a choice, if they wish to say how they should be governed, that is axiomatic. That, that's not a controversial issue. That's an issue which we take, we should take uh, as, as citizens of a democracy as being absolutely normal. But we are having a conversation as to whether the people of Scotland have the right to choose their own form of government. I, I know I would have thought we had dispensed with that debate many, many centuries ago. So I just think we need to all step back from this and say, let us approach this as mature, sensible, democratic politicians and make sure that that's what runs runs the show from now on. I think, yeah, I think I think actually the UK is quite unusual in in the fact that even in 2014 there, there was the referendum uh, agreed by 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 uh, Westminster and the, the way that the Prime Minister then David Cameron accepted the case for a referendum That's to not, take that was place. Never, that was never that was never in doubt or should should never have been in doubt. But internationally, I, it is quite. Well, I tell you why. Why it's there that that that, that mm. set of procedures. It is there so that there was no glass ceiling to devolution. And I was there when it was negotiated. You know, uh, unlike all the people in the Westminster government tell me I don't understand this. You know, I was actually there. And, and there could have been no participation by the SNP in the 19, we're now going back to the 1997 referendum, were there to have been a glass ceiling that prevented the a devolved parliament from moving on if it so choose, something that's also uh, preserved in the Smith uh, report after the 2014 referendum. And it was agreed that the mechanism there should be would be that both parliaments would vote for it, but it was never ever anticipated that this would be something that could be withheld. Essentially the understanding, and, and you can see that from the debates of the time, the understanding was that if the Scottish Parliament said that it should have a referendum, that would be that would trigger the consent of the UK government. Just as incidentally, that case is being argued in another place in these islands by Mark Drakeford in Wales, who is very explicitly arguing, and he is not a nationalist. I've worked very closely with Mark, as you know, on Brexit, but he's not a nationalist. He is arguing, however, that if the Welsh Parliament were to say that it wished to have a referendum, there could be no question about it. So you know, it is there for a purpose, it should never have been doubted, and it is being abused by Boris Johnson at the present moment as it was abused by Theresa May. And we need to get this argument back to its democratic roots and for it to be accepted. The, yeah, Mark, Mark Drakeford's position is, is an interesting one, but of course, when it comes to it, it's, it's going to be the position taken at Westminster that counts. And I mean, you talked about the original devolution settlement. The Scotland Act 1998 um, states that the Scottish Parliament cannot legislate um, with, cannot pass legislation that relates to reserved matters, including the Union of Scotland and England. That's the crucial, uh, the crucial, crucial phrase in the legislation. Yeah. So what, what my question is, 
I understand the democratic argument you're making for Scotland to have the right to to determine its own future in this way. But the legal position, it may be the more important one in the short run, at least. Do, do you as a government have internal advice supporting the idea that the Scottish Parliament could legislate to hold a referendum without Westminster backing? I'm not going to refer to legal advice. You know I'm not going to refer to legal advice. <laughs> Uh, but what I am saying is, and this is a really important point, Akash, and you know, the intention of the legislation is often, as you know, in legal interpretation, taken into account. And the intention of this legislation, and it's quite clear from the time, you know, and, and, and some of us are still around who can attest to it as well, was to make sure that there was no glass ceiling. And therefore, just as the Smith Commission confirmed in 2015 when it reported, you know, if the people of Scotland wish a referendum, then the expectation at that stage and should be in a democracy that they can have it. And I do, I know I know you want to argue law as, a, as opposed to uh, democracy, but I think there are circumstances in which democracy has to be looked at very closely and said that is the norm, that is what should happen. And I, I think that uh, the Boris Johnson should recognise that now. Yeah, I'm 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 quite happy to to discuss democracy as 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 well as law, and and I and I see the force of your argument, um, but I am also interested in in the legal position. And I mean, you say you 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 were there at the time, of course, of the the original devolution referendum, the passage of the the legislation that established the Scottish Parliament. I've spoken to people who are involved at it, in in that process as well, senior officials and and politicians, um, and the point that's been made to me is that the bill was drafted specifically to ensure that the Scottish Parliament could not hold a referendum on uh, independence without Westminster backing. So I would I would question your your, your characterization. Well, yeah, I, I, I would question theirs. I mean, you know, and this may well be this may well come to a, a debate and a discussion about whose memory is best. But the the intention could never have been that there was some blockage to moving on. There had to be a mechanism to move on. And clearly that mechanism in 99, if you remember the debates in 99, was not going to be you know, a straight line mechanism, but the mechanism was, and it was, it was not anticipated that if a Scottish parliament voted for such a thing, which would have been regarded as unusual at that, that stage, if we remember what the politics of the time looked like, sure. then it would not be able to move on. And what is happening here? And, and worse, I mean, you know, speculation, as I said, from Adam Tompkins last week and, and, and articles from others that actually say it should not be permitted, that in actual fact, democracy should not be permitted to operate. Now, I don't accept that ever. No, and I mean, I, I, I know you, I, I knew you weren't going to obviously reveal the internal legal advice um, <laughs> to me live on air, but uh, are you able to explain like what would be the way around the, the the provision of the Scotland Act that I already cited that says Hollywood cannot legislate in in or cannot pass a bill that relates to the union of Scotland and England. I mean, many people think that's quite, you know, definitive. Well, I'll give you the exact way around it, which is that the uh, the current UK government accepts the principle of democracy and says we'll give you a section 30 order. That's that's the easiest way to resolve that's the, the easiest way around it. For sure. That's the easiest way to resolve the issue. And that's what would happen in any normal democracy. And I hope we might still live in one. OK, so. We know then 
plan A is to, to reach agreement, section 30 order, and then you legislate and the referendum takes place. Plan B is to legislate to take the bill forward. I, 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 I'm not I'm not going down because we that rabbit hole was opened up in 2014, A, B, C, D and E, uh, you know, and, and this is mere speculation and mere speculation does us no good. There is a bill, there is a franchise established, there is an election. If a government elected brings forward a bill, I'm sure it will pass it, uh, providing it has a majority in the parliament. Uh, and then we move on from there. That is, uh, and in a normal democracy, there would be no difficulty in moving on from there. And that's what I want to see in normal democracy. OK, well, I suppose we, won't, we don't have too long to wait then, uh, 10 days or, or, or so, uh, before we maybe see some of this play out in real time, um, potentially um, all the way to the Supreme Court and back. So um, let's move on then to a, a, a couple of questions about what independence might look like. And um, I know that the Scottish Government hasn't yet set out its detailed vision for this in the way that, of course, it did in uh, 2013, it will have been, or, uh, or so in anticipation of the first referendum. But there are some big questions that I think even now, as, as, as the SNP makes the case that vote for us, to secure uh, another referendum, voters might wish to have some clarity about. So the first one is about the uh, fiscal situation. So back in 2014, uh, the fiscal position for Scotland was somewhat better than it is now, mainly because of the, uh, the, the decline in revenue from offshore oil and gas. Um, as it stands, based on the Scottish government's own analysis, Scotland was running a deficit of around 9% of GDP prior to coronavirus. Um, and public spending is, of course, uh, significantly higher in Scotland than in England, uh, and tax revenue doesn't cover it, essentially. So could an independent Scotland balance its books? Can any country balance its books at the present moment? What is the UK deficit at the present moment? It's well over 300 billion. You know, I mean, it's much I, less than 9% of GDP. Well, there. well I th I'm not sure we know that now because I don't think we know how we will, how any country will work its way back from the current situation. Look, two things have happened that have changed this debate beyond any anything that we would anticipate in 2014. One is Brexit and the other is the pandemic. And the, both, the, both those things change how things are going to move forward from here. When, when Nicola was talking earlier this week about the need to, to renew the economic analysis, she was saying something that's absolutely uncontroversial. Both those things change absolutely. I do not accept that Scotland is incapable of becoming a wealthy, small, prosperous nation within the EU. When I look at the EU, I just don't accept that thesis in the slightest. So when I when we then you know, start on this debate, as you rightly say, what this election at the present moment is about, is about particularly about the referendum. That's the issue referred to in the manifesto, getting the referendum. But when we have this debate, we should have this debate based in actual fact upon essentially it, it, the practical, the practical relative merits of the options, not upon what Scotland cannot do 
as a result of some assumptions that are made about deficits or otherwise. It is on the practical options that we're looking for. There's some really interesting stuff about the Growth and Stability Pact, you know, which would bring in the issue of deficits in this. How the Growth and Stability Pact, which of course was suspended during the pandemic, also is not the absolute barrier to any country becoming a member. That has never been the case, nor is it an absolute barrier for any member remaining a member. You know, there, 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 it is in actual fact a set of guidelines which you can work into and which the EU will work with countries, particularly candidate countries, to work their way through from them. So you know, the simple answer to this is let's have the debate on the referendum. Then when we get the referendum, let's have a very intensive debate on this. Let's have it on the relative merits of the proposals, not on the fact that in some curious way, Scotland, as the First Minister said yesterday to Andrew Marr, is uniquely unable to take its place amongst a group of nations in the EU because it's simply impossible. There's some, there's some defect in, in our, 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 our character or something that does not allow us to do so. So let's have it on the relative merits of the proposals. Until then, let's get through the pandemic and get that over and done with. And let's also you know, address some of the problems that we have in the relationships that we have that are making things very difficult in these islands. Sure. I mean, I would I would never make the argument that Scotland could not be a, a, a successful independent state. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously wealthier than the EU average, um, perfectly capable of, of, of standing by itself on the international stage. However, I would say that the if, if, if Scotland went down that path, there would be some difficult questions about levels of public spending and or taxation um, that, as I say, at the moment, um, there is that deficit and it would have to be dealt with one way or the other. Um, so Those are enormous questions for almost every country and particularly, you know, I would suggest, I don't want to be too rude about this, but particularly I would suggest for the UK at the present moment. I mean, there are enormous post-pandemic questions which are exacerbated by Brexit. Um, and those are questions that every country will have to address. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on to um, another issue. So um, we have a question actually from the audience. I was going to ask you a similar question anyway, but uh, John Newham London. John Newham from London. I'm not sure if he's in Newham or that's his name. Apologies, John, anyway. <laughs> um, he asks, in the event of an independent Scotland joining the EU, how would the issue of trade with the, the remnants of the UK uh, deal with the likelihood of a hard border? So as, uh, as I know you know, Mike, but others may not be aware, the IFG recently published a paper on this very issue, uh, making the argument that if Scotland were to leave the UK, rejoin the EU, the Anglo-Scottish border would therefore become the EU's external frontier. Um, and therefore, the implication is there would need to be customs controls, regulatory checks on uh, food and, and, and other products crossing that border. So how would you deal with that? Well, we resolutely um, oppose the idea of any sort of hard border. Indeed, we're not the people who want to erect borders. I've spent the last five years debating with UK government ministers who want to erect borders, who've done their very best to erect borders and are still trying to do so. The very opposite is, is, is our case. Let's start with a common travel area. I think, I think it's absolutely unexceptional to believe that we will continue to be in the common travel area. And I don't think that is, a, that, that is at, at risk. So, uh, you know, that means that there's no people border. 
Um, in terms of, of all other borders, our view is that uh, we will be able to find ways, provided we're all motivated to find those ways, that uh, ensure that those borders do not produce uh, a negative effect. Now, that is actually the aspiration of the UK government as well. This is not an exceptional aspiration because that's been their aspiration, for example, in, in Northern Ireland, where I believe Michael Gove talked about Northern Ireland having the best of both worlds. Uh, what we want to see is the best of both worlds as, as well. And you know, as time goes on, and this will not happen, you know, the, 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 the resolution of this for the UK uh, with Ireland will not happen tomorrow. As time goes on, these means will be found. So I am confident that if we are determined to have our uh, to have essentially no such barriers, if uh, the UK is determined that that's also what it wants to see, then that can be achieved and will be achieved. But we don't want those borders and we don't think those borders will be necessary and we will work to make sure there aren't those borders. We would hope that the UK government would be working in the same direction, uh, you know, and if that was the case, then I think we would find a far better set of, 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 of accommodations. Um, I've had to there's, there's another issue that also arises in this, which, which needs to be considered, which is the detrimental effect of, of the current UK policy. Now, actually, you know, that is biting into Scottish prosperity. So we need to find new ways of working with people. And that includes working with the rest of the UK. But it does mean re-entering the EU, because otherwise we're going to suffer continued disadvantage, which we did not vote for. And in this scenario, there's there's lots of hurdles, of course, uh, before we get to this point. But assuming Scotland secured its independence from from the UK, would there then be a referendum on rejoining the EU? I, I think I think that that would depend on the circumstances of the time and what the requirements of the time are. The people of Scotland have been pretty unequivocal in wanting to stay in every single poll in the in the EU. So you could argue that that was not necessary. There are circumstances in which you could say it would be desirable to have a, a, a re-endorsement of it. Um, my own view is it's not necessary, but I wouldn't go through the, to the wall for it and I shall not be a decision maker anyway. OK, fair enough. Um, all right. A question, another question from uh, the audience. Um, so, I mean, this potentially relates to the point I touched on. Are there circumstances in which the UK government might try to set the terms, impose conditions on an independence referendum? So um, a couple of people have asked a similar question, actually. David Wood, on such a critical constitutional issue, such as independence, should there not be a requirement for a majority of all voters to support the change rather than a simple majority of those who actually vote? Um, a similar question from David Gow of Skeptical Scotland. Well, a bit different, but basically just raising this question of should there be a higher threshold of some kind for such a momentous and you know, probably irreversible decision? Well, electing governments is momentous and often irreversible. Uh, it well, Sometimes, it often feels like that sometimes, particularly at the moment uh, when you look at the UK government. And, and you know, elections are about winners and, and, and those who do not win. The important thing here is to make sure that it is you try and have as inclusive a policy as possible so you're not making people feel that they've been frozen out. I, I don't believe gerrymandering results from uh, referenda is a sensible thing to do. Uh, uh, it's it's only ended in tears whenever it's been tried. And if one remembers the very unhappy story of the 1979 referendum, I think we should avoid that like the plague. 
Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, at 79 referendum when there was a requirement that you had to have a majority of those votes cast and which had to represent 40% of all registered voters. And yeah, this is just for people who are unaware, but a majority of votes were cast in favour of devolution, but it missed the threshold. And so the, the, the plans were lost as a result. And um, yes, and the rest is history. Okay, uh, another question then I was going to put to you, which has just vanished helpfully from my screen. Um, okay, well, here's a question then. It wasn't the one I was going to ask you. Um, James, from James Calder, um, again about sort of what independence might look like. Well, the first one of his questions, I think I know the answer. Will the Queen or her successors be head of state? I believe the answer to that is clear cut. Yes, because you plan to um, undo the 1707 union, but not the 1603 union of the crowns. Correct me if I'm getting my history wrong. No, no, you're fine. You, you, keep, <laughs> answering. you keep answering. I can answer that one for I'll you. Correct, I'll correct you if you get the answers wrong. Okay, sure. And the follow-up question, uh, will there be a Scottish Defence Force? I think that's an interesting yes. question. What would be the, what would be the, basically the plans for, yeah, for defence and military? Every country has a you know, requirement for defence. I mean, Scotland would be no different. We published plans in the 2014 referendum, which I refer people to. They would obviously have to be updated. But clearly, conventional defence forces, uh, we've been very keen on not having nuclear weapons. And clearly, a country, a small country like Scotland, it would be out of the, out of the question. But uh, conventional defence forces focused on the actual needs that you had. And then there are, you know, there are countries that specialise in other things. Ireland, for example, has been very active in peacekeeping. Uh, you know, and Ireland has been extraordinarily successful, uh, both in, 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 in terms of how it projected itself in the world through the positive use of its defence forces and also through soft diplomacy. And indeed is now an elected member of, of the Security Council. So there are good examples where small countries, in actual fact, accepting the inevitabilities of having to have diplomatic service and, and, and a defence service and all those things, turn them to good and modern accounts. OK, great. Um, yes, OK, I remember the question that uh, there's a, put to us from someone anonymous, which is about the franchise. So you've talked already about, of course, Scotland has, uh, Scottish Parliament has legislated to, to expand the franchise as far as people within Scotland are concerned. But is there a case also for, say, Scottish born people who live elsewhere in the UK to have a vote in any future referendum? Um, this was discussed extensively in the run up to 2014. Uh, there are there are both practical and theoretical issues involved here. Theoretically, my own view is that there was, this is the, the issue for the people who live in Scotland. Uh, it is about their future. It, classically, this is about self-determination. So the, the issue is the franchise should be the people who live in Scotland and nobody else. There are some very practical issues in terms of this. I mean, Ireland, again, has been struggling with the issue involving people who don't live in Ireland um, for taking part in certain elections, including you know, the presidential election. And, and it is a tricky and difficult thing to do, and it would be even more difficult to do in these circumstances. I stand by the, the practical and the theoretical. I think it, for, practically it's difficult to do, and theoretically this is a matter of self-determination for the people who live in Scotland. Okay. All right, thanks for answering that so directly. Okay, let's move on then um, to questions that don't relate to independence for the for the remainder of our time. Um, so, as long as Scotland remains part of the UK, uh, what changes 
or further devolution would would you like to see as a priority? Because obviously, you know, you want everything to be decided in Edinburgh, so to speak. That's that's clear. But as long as that doesn't happen, what would be your priorities for for further changes to the devolution arrangements? Oh, we we've been very clear. We you know I, I've been very clear in the last almost five years uh, as a member of the, the joint ministerial committee structure that it is not fit for purpose and indeed that's no surprise you yourselves have reported on it others have reported on it it's a highly unsatisfactory set of arrangements um, but it is predicated by Westminster sovereignty in other words London is always in charge that's that's where we've been and there has been a great deal of work over the last three and a bit years since there was an agreed <coughs> review of the intergovernmental structure which was agreed I think by Theresa May in, in March 2018, there's been an effort to try and find some new way of, of operating, which it particularly tackled the issue that when a, a problem occurs, in the end, the UK government is a judge and jury in its own case. And they, the particularly um, extraordinary example of that was the money that went to Northern Ireland and to, and to the DUP, uh, which was not barnetized. So uh, they, both Wales and Scotland said, hang on a minute, whatever you, you choose to do with this, you must make sure that there's barnetized because it's money going from the UK to Northern Ireland and it should be applied in the same way. And it, the, the UK government said, you know, nothing to see here, Gov, please pass it on. You know, we're not having anything to do with it. So we have tried very hard. There was the UK government published an update paper on this just before PERDA, um, indicating where there could be agreement. But the basic issue is still the bugbear, uh, you know, a, a, the Treasury is utterly unwilling to accept that there should be any independent uh, uh, evaluation or, or jurisdiction uh, on these matters. Everything has to, in the end, be decided by the UK government, and that simply would not be acceptable. So unless the UK government is prepared to accept that the notions on which they're working, particularly the notion of sovereignty, Westminster sovereignty, is to some extent negotiable for devolution, it's going to be very hard to get anything meaningful. I also think that there is now a greater hostility towards devolution and towards subsidiarity than there has ever been in the UK government and actually in the Westminster Parliament, partly born out of ignorance of the situation, partly born out of distance since it was set up. Um, and I think both both of those things are making it very difficult to get the changes we need. There are some minor matters in this as the issue of uh, the UK government is taking the Scottish Parliament to court again over the issue of, of, of uh, incorporating UN legislation. That's, that's a problem because there's no legal reason why we can't do it, but they're very concerned or worried about it. And there have been small niggles. I mean, for example, in the British Irish Council, the UK Prime Minister never goes. Taoiseach is always there, UK Prime Minister never goes. The new draft of the Intergovernmental Review actually almost takes the Prime Minister out of things. The actual fact that, again, it will be a matter below the Prime Minister. That's not how it was set up to try and get the leaders of the administrations working together. So I'm not hopeful that this will produce a result, but it is possible there could be one. If mm. And I think Wales and Scotland would be in a very similar position on this. There could be one if the UK government would recognise this basic problem and at least try to resolve it. Yeah, I mean, that, so that progress update from the from the review, um, I, it was it's quite interesting. I mean, I've been following these issues for, for, for many years and, and the Institute for Government has, as, as, as you say. And to my mind, it was quite an impressive 
impressive set of, of proposals, quite a number of which it appears were signed off by all four governments, uh, including obviously the Scottish government, because the, it was just certain sections of that document that were placed in square brackets, indicating that agreement hadn't been reached. And the big ones, as you say, were around finance and I think around devolved involvement in uh, international affairs and say trade negotiations and so on. But that suggested to me that you had actually made quite a lot of progress on other matters. Well, nothing was decided until it's all decided. You know, I mean, that's the basic principle of negotiation and nothing is decided. Um, yes, upgrading and modernizing the relationship short of independence, because I, you know, my own view is that whatever you do, it will not be as good as independence. But short of independence, we've made it clear whilst there continues to be a union, we should at least try to work together. But it's been very frustrating these last few years, and particularly since the Johnson government came to power, it's been very frustrating indeed, because there has been and remains a hostility towards devolution, in fact, a growing hostility towards devolution. I mean, when you have, you know, I think the Secretary of State for Scotland is against devolution, frankly, the way he operates. And, and I do think this is not something that can allow a good re relationship to flourish. OK, and uh, maybe a good follow up question from another anonymous person could be the same anonymous person I don't know uh, will common frameworks go some way to addressing any of your concerns with devolution so these are agreements that are being yeah. negotiated in it's, areas that were previously governed uh, primarily by EU law it's a really good question because they were the solution to a working relationship between the, 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 the countries um, they weren't without their difficulty but actually, we've been able to, by dint of very substantial hard work, particularly by officials, get to the stage where we have a large number of common frameworks which could govern the relationship. But unfortunately, they have been undermined by uh, this, the, 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 the internal market bill. And unfortunately, they've been put into a secondary position by a piece of Westminster legislation which can override them at will again the Westminster sovereignty question, and that makes, I think, it difficult for them to be the success that they should be, which is a, an enormous, an enormous pity, because if the UK government had done what it needed to do and to accept that the uh, frameworks were, were the framework, which we've always said and we've always agreed to, and they've never been imposed, they've been in place, the work on this has been going on for over three years, uh, it, the UK government's had to report every three months on it, and every three months it's been able to report that there has been no imposition because we've been able to negotiate. And unfortunately, they have damaged that very severely by the internal markets bill, which was utterly unnecessary. Um, it, and and you know, it would be nice to think that somebody in the UK government recognised that and was going to turn the clock back on that, because that would be the way to get whilst the UK lasts, and you know, my own view won't last for that long, but whilst the UK lasts, then it sh this would be the framework that would make cooperation better and would probably then extend outwards after independence into a, a network of relationships which would probably be productive for both of us. Yeah, well, the UK Internal Market uh, Act is, again, something that the IFG has been following and colleagues of mine will be uh, publishing a paper on that um, subject. I believe uh, in June or possibly later in May. So please do look out for that. Uh, one quick question. Uh, yeah, this is just one from me actually. Um, so the SNP manifesto uh, published last week um, 
suggests that when the Scottish fiscal framework, so it sets the rules by which Scottish government is funded, um, is reviewed as it has to be uh, at some point over the next year or so, um, that should be taken as opportunity to expand the tax and borrowing powers of the Scottish Parliament. So, I mean, my question to you is, well, first of all, what exactly would you like to see to see change there? But follow up to that, might there be an acceptable deal there in which the Scottish Government could be given some of those extra fiscal powers, but um, that might be balanced with reform to the Barnet formula and the, the underlying system which provides for a substantially higher level of public spending in Scotland than in England? Well, well, you see, the, the trouble with that is that in that sentence in which you introduced it, you used the word given. So in other words, you know, everything is on a grace and favour basis. Um, and, and you also talked about the, the higher level of public expenditure, whereas I'd like to talk about higher level of need and the, the requirement in actual fact for us to use resources to the purposes for which we believe they're best suited, which is a basic in devolution. So I, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, a, well, I'm pretty sure a deal couldn't be done on those basis. So what we're talking about with the fiscal framework is making sure that the powers that the Scottish Parliament has are sufficient, at least under devolution, sufficient to allow us to meet the challenges we have. And, and that was particularly sharply focused during the, at the start of the pandemic, where in actual fact, by the stroke of a pen, the UK government could have increased the, the borrowing potential of the Scottish government, we could have operated in a, in, a, in a way that we felt was much more focused and it would have got away from the friction that has existed um, as a result. And I can't see any reason why the UK government wouldn't take the opportunity of the review of the fiscal framework to say what worked and what didn't work, what, what would be helpful and what wouldn't be helpful and let's have the broadest possible review. But it looks as if the Treasury as ever wants the narrowest possible review, which is weighted in their favour. And, you know, we've been through that too often. I mean, we, you know, we are pretty used to that as a type of argument. So we're saying, no, we want it, the broadest review. But of course, that's put into context by the fact that the only, the only solution that would work is you take the resources of Scotland and you apply them to the problems of Scotland. I'm, as you can see from my picture, I'm I'm in the Highlands of Scotland, the classic definition of the Highland problem, not being able to use the resources of the Highlands, people and everything else for the benefit of the Highlands. And independence is about using the benefits, the, all the resources of Scotland, people, natural resources, all the attributes of Scotland, the fine education system, all the things that we do well apply to the problems of Scotland. That would be a better solution. OK, fine. Well, we are now at uh, 2.15, which is the... Uh, ending time as uh, scheduled for this discussion. As ever, there's lots of other good questions have been uh, proposed on the chat that I'm afraid we don't have time to take. Um, but thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, Mike, many thanks for, thank uh, for, for being with us today. Thank you.